2: President of the Cancer Support Community, in 2009, the wellness community joined forces with Gilda's Club to become the Cancer Support Community, the largest provider of cancer support in the United States and around the world. Our services are offered at more than 170 locations worldwide and online at www.cancersupportcommunity.org. This year, an estimated 137,000 people in the United States will be diagnosed with colorectal cancer. On average, the lifetime risk of developing colorectal, colorectal cancer for an individual is one in 20. One in 20 individuals will develop colorectal cancer in their lifetime. In February 2000, President Bill Clinton officially declared March as the National Colorectal Cancer Awareness Month. And since then, It's become a rallying point for all impacted by this diagnosis to join together, spread awareness, community, and hope. So, in honor of Colorectal Cancer Awareness Month this month, we are going to take an in depth look at the diagnosis, the deeper meaning of the Awareness Month, you know, how you can really take advantage of that, all the way from diagnosis to treatment and living well, as well as survivorship being an advocate for yourself, and other topics. So joining me to tackle all of this today are Michael Sapienza, who is the CEO of Colon Cancer Alliance, and Austin Thomas, who is an MS RDN LDN, Dietitian Nutritionist with Keystone Nutrition, LLC. And Austin, I'm going to have you uh, walk us through all of those wonderful credentials in just a second. Okay. Let me just tell you a little bit about Michael. Michael lost his mother to colorectal cancer in May of 2009 and served as the president and founder of an organization and great partner of CSC's called CRISPR Life Colon Cancer Foundation. He was there as their CEO from 2010 to 2015. He's turned his profound grief into action, inspiring and, and challenging the colorectal cancer community family friends and professional associates to follow his lead and dedicate themselves to this cause and the colon cancer alliance mission michael was an integral part of the team that led the effort to merge the colon cancer alliance and the christ for life colon cancer foundation creating what is now the nation's largest colon cancer specific nonprofit. He is a member of the Center for the Cure of GI Cancers Advisory Board at Georgetown University and has received numerous awards for his advocacy in colorectal cancer awareness and prevention. Michael, welcome back to the show. It's always great to have you here.
3: Thank you, Linda. I appreciate it. Glad to be here.
2: And then joining Michael today is Austin Thomas. Austin was a Division I athlete at Bucknell University, majoring in psychology. She went on to pursue a Master's of Science in Human Nutrition from Drexel University. And this is where she became a self-proclaimed foodie and gym rat race junkie. She then completed her, her dietetic internship at St. Louis University with an emphasis on sports medicine and physical performance. She continued to develop her nutritional knowledge base, especially in the areas of adrenal fatigue, autoimmune disease, and sports nutrition at Lifetime Fitness in Virginia. An unexpected diagnosis of stage 4 cancer then opened Austin's eyes to the nutritional needs of patients in the space of oncology. And she has used her skills to maintain her energy and continue working and even running a half marathon. So we're happy to have you here with us today too, Austin. Thank you, Sasha. So give us a quick tutorial on your, so it's a master's of science.
4: The RDN is registered dietitian and nutritionist. The okay. LPN is Licensed Dietitian and Nutritionist.
2: Got it. Uh, yeah. Got it. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, Michael, let's, let's start off by talking about colorectal cancer, and um, I'd love for you to just take a moment and explain the diagnosis to our listeners.
3: Sure, absolutely. Um so normally uh, colorectal cancer is diagnosed uh, after a either a routine colonoscopy or a preventative colonoscopy. Um and there are four different stages, uh, stage one, stage two, stage three, and stage four. Um, starting with stage four, uh, that's where uh, the tumor has actually uh, perforated the colon and, and metastasized to uh, an organ outside of, of the colon. Stage three is where it's actually in the lymph node. Stage two is where it's um, perforated the colon wall. And uh, stage one, is it's, it's still actually a polyp, but not large enough to remove through, through a, uh, a colon.
2: Okay. And there are an estimated 137,000 people in the United States that will be diagnosed with colon cancer this year. Are there any groups who are more or less at risk for being diagnosed with colorectal cancer?
3: Yeah, absolutely. So those that have a family history, so I can't stress enough to those the uh, you know our listeners right now, you know, to ask about your family history. So it's normally a first degree relative, but uh, I would con- I would continue to, to to try to learn as much as you can about your family history because those are individuals that have a family history are certainly at a higher risk. Um, African Americans in general um, should be screened earlier as well, and that are. And are at a higher risk. Those that have Crohn's or colitis should be screened more often, often as well. Um, so those are the main main areas. So those that have a family history, um, you know, African Americans, and those that have Crohn's and colitis as well.
2: Mm-hmm. And what about people that are aging? The general aging population.
3: Yeah, I know that's true in breast absolutely. cancer. Yeah, so absolutely. So, you know, whereas most of us know that the screening age for breast cancer is 40, so for colorectal cancer or colon or rectal cancer, it's actually age 50. Um, And so if you are, if you do not have a family history or or you're not African-American, you should go in for your first screening colonoscopy and or other type of screening test, which maybe we'll talk about at some point today, um, Excuse me. At age at age 50, and depending on whether they find polyps or not, um, you will go in either every year, every two years, every three years, every five years, or every ten years. So, if you have a polyp, when you go in your first time, or you have more than one polyp, make sure to ask your doctor, your GI doc, when do I need to come back? Because Linda, we find out a lot of times that patients or individuals, individuals, you know, just those out there that are getting colonoscopies, they go in for their first test and they find out they have one polyp and they think they're done forever and you know, unfortunately, if you do have a polyp, you do need to go back. And even if you don't, it's actually every 10 years that you still need to go back. Um, so for those that are African-American, like I said, it's 45. If you have a family history, it's age 40. And then for those, uh, like, for example, for me, you know, my mom was diagnosed with colorectal cancer at, at a fairly young age. So it would be 10 years prior to your first degree relative being diagnosed with colon cancer.
2: Great. I am gonna, I'm going to repeat some of that. Um, yeah, because of Because I course. do think one of the, big, the, the benefits of these awareness months are to really sort of use those as your own personal trigger. You know, so if you yep. don't have colorectal cancer, or to use those as your personal trigger. So you said, I'm going to just repeat some ages to you. You said at age 40, if I'm 40, what, what, what should I do?
3: So if you're age 40 and you have a family history of colon Mm -hmm. cancer, you should definitely go in and talk to your doctor about your first screening, whether it's a colonoscopy, whether it's a FIT test, whether it's the new Cologuard test. That's what you should do at age 40.
2: And age 45?
3: At age 45, if you are African American, that's when you should start your screening for colorectal cancer.
2: Great. And then you said if you have a family history, you should... You should go for your first screening ten years prior to the age of your family member when they were diagnosed.
3: Yes, yeah, so, so say for example, my mom was diagnosed at age forty. I would start mm-hmm. my screening at age thirty.
2: Okay, great. That's very helpful. And then you mentioned some screening tests. Mm-hmm. Why don't you? Can you spend a little time just sort of talking us through what the screening tests
3: yeah, are? And- Absolutely, absolutely. So the colonoscopy is still the gold standard. Uh, you know, that's the test where, where you do have to do a prep beforehand, the night before um, you go in and, you know, the, the, the doctor that does, uses the scope to actually look through your entire colon for what we call polyps. And polyps are, are just very small um, pieces that have grown in your colon, and they can actually remove them. And that is what prevents colon cancer. So they actually go in, they remove those polyps, And prevent them from turning into cancer. Um, So, you know, colonoscopy, like I said, is still the gold standard. Um, There are two or three other tests. Um, There's something called the FIT test or the FOBT test. So, those are fecal tests. You can do them at home, they're very inexpensive, but they are not as Um, effective or as uh, let's let's just say as effective as a colonoscopy and if they do come back positive you still do have to go back and get a colonoscopy but if you are fearful if you are afraid or the costs are a barrier we always encourage that fit an FOB tip FOBT test is better than doing nothing. So I would absolutely consult your doctor about those two. And then there's also two others that are fairly new. One is called the Cologuard. It is also a take-home fecal test, but it's much more sensitive than the FIT and the FOBT test. And then the fourth one is actually the virtual colonoscopy colonoscopy, um, and that's just really very new to, to the market. You still have to do a prep, and like like I mentioned before, Linda, if they do find something, you have to go in to get a colonoscopy as well.
5: Mm-hmm. Okay,
2: and then what about, you know, we hear so much about genetic testing. Are we sure. at a point where we have genetic tests for patients who may be at risk for colorectal cancer?
3: We do, we do. Um, you know, there are a couple uh, syndromes. There's one called Lynch syndrome, there's another called FAP, and there's a couple other small ones. Leifermini is one. Um, and these are very rare syndromes. So it's less than 5% of those that are diagnosed with colorectal cancer have these sy- syndromes. And it's very hard to know from the general public if you do. Um, and so I would, I would strongly suggest, you know, that you talk to your doctor. If, if you have multiple family members that have had, a family history of, of not just colorectal cancer, but other types, like breast cancer, ovarian cancer, skin cancer, brain cancer. Um, you know, and if you, if you feel that you've had multiple relatives, I would, like I said, encourage either taking a family, uh, family history tool uh, test through your, your primary care physician or, you know, visit the Colon Cancer Alliance um, site because we also have some of those tests as well. Mm-hmm.
2: And so, so so, tell us how, you know, we've talked a little bit about screening. We've got just a, a couple of minutes left in this, in this segment. But I, I really want to uh, talk through just quickly how is colon cancer usually then diagnosed? And are there symptoms that people should be looking out for specifically?
3: Yeah, so let's. First, start with the symptoms. Uh, and, you know, I, I will say, uh, you know, we're going to be talking to Austin later and, and uh, many others that have had this disease I know have never presented with symptoms. And, you know, I'm not a physician either. But I, 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 I do want to say that, you know, just because you don't have symptoms, does not mean that you should not go in to get your screening at the ages that are recommended. That's really very, very important because if you catch colon cancer early, it is very, very preventable and it probably most likely will not return. So some of the symptoms though are. Um, you have either rectal bleeding or blood in your stools. You have a change in bowel habits. Um, you can have cramping or night sweats. Um, so those are some of them. And, and also know, Linda, the other thing is, is I also say, that that does not necessarily mean you have colon cancer either. So you need to consult with your doctor, either a GI or a primary care physician. If you have those those symptoms for an extended period of time, and I would also say, you know we might touch on this with Austin, but if you are a young young person and young by under the age of fifty, so you haven 't maybe gone in for your first first screening yet i would if you if those symptoms persist for any more than a couple months, I would be your own advocate, and I would absolutely um, persist on, on getting a screening colonoscopy or some other type of test um, because what's happening a lot of the time is, is because it's not as, as usual in, in this under-50 category, these patients are going in, they have these symptoms, and the doctor's think, oh, there's no way they could have colon cancer. Well, they send them home with some Metamucil. They come back six months later, and unfortunately, it's at a later diagnosis. Mm-hmm.
2: Okay, that's great. Great advice. Um, We are going to go to a quick commercial break. Austin, when we come back, I would love for you to share with our listeners um, a bit about your story, especially as someone who is diagnosed as a young adult um, with colorectal cancer. So this is Frankly Speaking About Cancer. Today's show is sponsored by Taiho Oncology. We will be right back with more after the break.
1: Effective cancer treatment requires more than just medication or surgery. For the country's 12 million cancer survivors and their loved ones, the social and emotional challenges of adapting to life with cancer are ongoing. How to handle co-workers' questions, how to get comfortable with new physical realities, how to reassure worried family members, or explain to friends your priorities have changed.
5: Help us reach our goal of 1,000 new breast cancer-specific meal trains this October. To learn more, visit mealtrain.com/mmt and enter the code Magnolia B, or visit us at cancersupportcommunity.org.
6: Hi, I'm Nick Nicolaides President and CEO of Morphotech, and we're delighted to be a sponsor of Cancer Support Communities' Frankly Speaking About Cancer series. Morphotech and its parent company, Azai, are committed to human health care, and we recognize that patients and their families are the most important participants in the healthcare care process. We salute our global advocacy partners who are devoted to improving the lives of people touched by cancer every day.
5: Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness.
2: March is National Colorectal Awareness Month, and as we are closing the Awareness Month, we are deciding to dedicate today's show to really discussing a type of cancer in death that is the third most commonly diagnosed among both men and women uh, combined. So it's a very, very important topic. I am your guest host today, Linda House, and our guests are Michael Sapienza, who's the CEO of the Colon Cancer Alliance, and Austin Thomas, who is a dietitian nutritionist with Keystone Nutrition, LLC. And for this segment, Austin, I would love for you to start us off by sharing a bit about your personal connection to colorectal cancer, which is not so typical.
4: Sure. So, um, October... Uh, 2014, I was diagnosed with stage four colon cancer, and this was uh, came after um, a lot of misdiagnoses. Um, being really young, I uh, was diagnosed four days after my 27th birthday, so um, not something that the doctors were expecting to find in me. Uh, I would just like kind of backtrack so other people who are listening might know that this might be a symptom or something that doctors would more commonly look for, and they were blaming pain that I was having on a ruptured ovarian cyst. Um, and couldn't find anything um, from all the testing. All my blood work was perfect. And then when they finally went in to do a colonoscopy, they were anticipating finding something like colitis or just IBS or something like that. And it ended up they weren't able to complete the colonoscopy because the tumor was so large. Um, I had surgery Almost immediately, it was two weeks after, so it was pretty immediate um, for getting into um, the OR. And I had a colon resection, and they were able to remove um, part of my liver as well. And then I was able to start chemotherapy um, in November, so a month after my surgery.
2: And sort of just walk us, you know, walk, I'm not going to ask you yeah. your your age at diagnosis because then we could do that reverse math, yeah. <laughs> but walk us through as a younger person, I, I suspect that that was the last thing that you were expecting you would find.
4: Yeah, definitely. I mean, when I was in high school, I, um, a couple doctors throughout the term IBS and I kind of just thought that I had a bad stomach. I, my stomach would hurt here and there, um, I would need amodium. I blamed it on my nerves. I was always kind of a nervous Nelly. And I I actually had rectal bleeding too mm-hmm. um, from the time I was 18, but it was never something um, Michael had mentioned earlier, like if you have a symptom that persists, um, go get it checked out. Well, I would have a symptom and it had have rectal bleeding, but then it would go away. So... Uh, so I thought it went away. It wasn't anything that I noticed. And doctors kind of just blew it off as, you're young, um, you probably have hemorrhoids, you're really active. So uh, I kind of went through life dismissing it after a lot of doctors kept telling me that I had hemorrhoids. So I it it was kind of embarrassed being a teenage girl, early 20s, going to the doctor and saying, oh, I have hemorrhoids. So it, it kind of stopped telling people. Um, so by the time that I... Went to the doctor. I had a lot of abdominal pain. I was just thinking that I had colitis, and there's no history of cancer in my family at all on either sides of the family. So cancer wasn't even in the back of my mind or something that I was anticipating finding after the colonoscopy. Mm-hmm.
2: So when you think about how you were able to take what you were most passionate about, right, your, your role in nutrition and your role as an athlete and this new diagnosis, how were you able to marry those two situations?
4: It was definitely a blessing having that knowledge, um, for sure, because, I mean, there is research that shows that if you are able to remain active, as active as possible, um, and you're able to maintain your weight during treatment, you have better outcomes. Um, Personal experience, I'd also say having a positive attitude (laughs) uh, helps as well. Uh, But I was able to maintain my activity. I was very motivated um, to want to get back to running again uh, since it's something that was inherent in me. And then my knowledge with nutrition, with chemotherapy, a lot of people kind of think about nausea, vomiting. um, But there's other issues, too. Um, like constipation from the anti-nausea medications. Uh, and then with colon cancer, it gets a little bit more complicated uh, because there's different nutrient absorption issues as well. So for me, um, having a knowledge of what to eat and what would be best for me um, definitely helped a lot. I was able to maintain almost all my weight. I only lost, oh, I think, 10 pounds was the most that I lost at one point in time. Um, and I lived on hot protein drinks, and I know it sounds gross, but I've found the best ones that had the most bang for your buck and the best-tasting ones, um, and I would heat them up because one of the other side effects of uh, one of the chemotherapy drugs that I was on is a sensitivity to cold. So any uh, colorectal uh, cancer patient who's going through that treatment right now knows exactly what I'm talking about, but it just feels like shards of glass going down your throat. You can't touch anything cold. So it was definitely um, nice to be able to heat those up and maintain my weight and drink a lot of those different flavors. I would add different um, like peppermint in it or vanilla to try to get it down.
2: Well, and I really think I think it's helpful to pause, sort of, on this for a moment to help people understand that as they're going, whether you have colorectal cancer or any other type of cancer, as you're going through your treatments, your taste or your affinity for certain flavors may change during that period of time.
4: Definitely, and uh, what helps too um, a lot of patients is if they eat foods that are. Uh, room temperature or really cold. Um, if you're if you're not on the oxaloplatin, so for other chemo treatments or other drugs, but there's definitely a taste change. Um, you're sometimes um, patients will have a hard time producing saliva, but there's things to help fix that, like biotin. Brushing your teeth with biotin works, or using a mouth rinse, mouthwash, and making sure that you tell your doctor. And uh, when you're with your oncologist, they can recommend you to a dietitian that can help you out with these problems that you're having because every patient is different. Um, no one experiences the same exact side effects, um, even if it's the same exact chemotherapy drug. So it's really important to make sure that um, not only are you an advocate, as Michael was saying, in terms of being screened and being diagnosed, but being an advocate for yourself when you're a patient and letting your doctors know exactly um, what side effects that you are having so that they can help you maintain your nutrition.
3: Mm-hmm. Right. And,
2: and, and I think also um, feeling okay about experimenting a little bit, like heating up your drinks, for example.
4: Exactly. Or, or they, actually, they uh, can help you come up with ideas that you might not have thought of yourself. But yes, you definitely have to be a little uh bit open to trying new things.
2: So how has your experience influenced you to get involved in the colon cancer community more broadly?
4: Um, well, when I was first diagnosed... Um, my oncologist was amazing, and he handed me a packet the first day that I was in his office and said, Chris for life, here, go. You need to get involved. And it's such a wonderful, supportive community, and being able to talk with their patients who were already going through or had gone through what I was about to go through um, was it was very helpful to prepare me um, for what might what I might experience and it's definitely, I want to give back. Um, there was this one group on Facebook um, called the Healthy Gut Cafe and a lot of people would be talking about food and nutrition and things like that but there was no dietitian or nutritionist um, running the group or uh, giving advice so I kind of like jumped in and found that as a role that I could help out with and help give people the facts because there's a lot of things out there on the internet. As soon as you Google nutrition and cancer, you can come up with all different things ranging from juices to eating raw to a lot of different myths um, and things that could actually hinder your treatment. So it was definitely an area that I saw that I could help out and give back to the community that helped me so much.
2: And then tell us quickly um, about where you are um, in your athletic endeavors.
4: Um, So right now I am training for a few races. Uh, I Mm -hmm. have two half marathons coming up in April and I have an Olympic triathlon coming up uh, in May and then I have two more triathlons in June so I have a busy spring schedule right now. So I'm still working out, still, still getting the races in, and trying to work my way back to my, my pre-cancer race time. Mm-hmm.
2: Well, I'll, I'm just going to throw this out to you and to our listeners. Um, the cancer support community will have a team for the nation's triathlon in September. So you have a standing invitation to join us for that I, event on September the 11th.
4: I accept. as long, Yeah, I was going to say, as long as it's not my sister's wedding, I accept. It works.
2: <laughs> Excellent. Excellent. We've got it on tape, right, Michael?
3: Yes, indeed. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I think Michael So, too. <laughs> great. Michael, I think she just brought you into it, too. Excellent.
3: Oh, great. I hope it's not at my wedding. <laughs> <laughs>
2: So we are going to take a quick commercial break. Today's show is sponsored by Taiho Oncology. We will be back with more of Frankly Speaking About Cancer right after the break.
5: Cancer, it's a lonely word. Terms I don't understand. Choices I never thought I'd have to make. But there is hope
0: and help support from cancer survivors links to research and clinical trials
5: help with finances and access to care all behind you of breakaway from cancer created by amgen to empower cancer patients the cancer support community is proud to be a partner of breakaway from cancer or call 617-733-5848.
6: Hi, I'm Nick Nicolaitis, President and CEO of Morphotech, and we're delighted to be a sponsor of Cancer Support Communities. Frankly Speaking About Cancer series. Morphotech and its parent company, Azai, are committed to human health care, and we recognize that patients and their families are the most important participants in the healthcare care process. We salute our global advocacy partners who are devoted to improving the lives of people touched by cancer every day.
5: Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness.
1: You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now, here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community.
2: Welcome back to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. I'm your guest host today, Linda House, and I am so pleased to be joined by Michael Sapienza, who is the CEO of the Colon Cancer Alliance, and Austin Thomas, a dietitian nutritionist with Keystone Nutrition and the newest member of CSC's nation's triathlon team in September. (laughs) So, Michael, our listeners have heard me use somewhat interchangeably, I'm sure um, it sounds that way. They put me use the terms CRIS for Life, Colon Cancer Alliance. You, are, you were the CEO of CRIS for Life. You are now the CEO of Colon Cancer Alliance. And the reason that is, it's great news. So I'm, I'm going to let you talk us through the, the changes that those two organizations have experienced in the last year.
3: Sure, absolutely. So as you mentioned before, Linda, my mom uh, unfortunately did pass away from colon cancer. Uh, it was Mother's Day in 2009, and uh, in my previous life, as I call it, I was a professional musician uh, playing all all around the world. Uh, and I moved home a little bit before she, before she died and was here uh, when she passed. And, you know, shortly after our family just you know, decided we were going to put together an organization to to try to end this disease, and we did just that. We founded Chris for Life in 2010, and we focused on uh, research, patient support, and prevention. And quickly grew to be uh, the second largest in the country. Uh, you know, over just uh, three or four short years. And I, I quickly found out through just you know being an advocate and working with with survivors and families, et cetera, that you know it didn't matter whether it was the colon cancer alliance or fight colorectal cancer or Chris for life or colon town or wherever they were they just wanted to make a difference and you know our our disease state is specifically colon cancer colorectal cancer there's a lot of a, a lot of um Let's say myths about it, and there's taboos around it, and, and I always felt we have to work together to to really make a difference for people, you know, like Austin or or other patients, you know, people like my mom, uh, who who, who was, you know unfortunately did succumb to the disease, and so I went to uh, actually the board chair of Colon Cancer Alliance about a year and a half ago and said let's do this together, uh, and make make to make a long story short, on January first we merged the so Colon Cancer Alliance colon and Cancer Alliance being the largest organization for colon cancer in the country and Chris for life we merged on January 1 and it is incredibly exciting Lindo i mean we've gone through strategic planning we've had our first board meeting we've done all these really exciting things talking about how we can leverage this this uh, incredible chemistry with these two organizations into helping more patients you know providing additional funds for research and trying to really you know increase the number of people that are screened I and mean, we're, we're still looking at just uh, you know two. Let's say you know two out of three people across this country being screened for colon cancer, and we, you know, we really need to make a bigger difference. And I felt, and a lot of others felt, both of our boards, et cetera, that this was the time to do this. This was the time to turn, as we call, you know, to call uh, turn colon cancer blue instead of pink. So
2: that's great. That's, and yeah. I know there's so much energy, and, and you know we had a we CSC had a, a friendly little um, competition with Christopher for Life in the uh, in the fall of last year around Ready Raise Rise, and we've done radio shows around Ready Raise Rise, and so I I know firsthand the power of the work that you all do, and it's 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 really remarkable. Thank
3: you for for thank doing that. You, thank you, Linda. Yeah, I appreciate that.
2: And so I want, you know, before we get into, I, I want to get into this section on, um, on self-advocacy. And we've touched on that a little bit. But, you know, we've talked about screening. We've talked about diet. We have not talked um, a lot about some of the treatment options available um, mm-hmm. to patients. And I know, you know, I've been an oncology nurse now for, for 30 years. And, and the treatment for colorectal cancer is not the same treatment. That I first experienced when I you know got out of nursing school. And I would say that it's not the same treatment that that you know really has been around for the last ten years. We've had um, uh, some progress. And I'm wondering if you could just share with us just generally how, how what do people what what should people expect if they're diagnosed with uh, with colorectal cancer and how what are the ways in which it's treated?
3: Yeah, so I think in a broad broad term, you know, you're, you're you're correct. So until you know the early 2000s, there was one treatment for colorectal cancer, you know, five FU, and it was it was like called what we call the standard of care, and and then now it's 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 amazing. I mean, we're working towards what we call precision or personalized medicine, where depending on what your tumor looks like under a microscope or what the genetic makeup is of this tumor um, is, where you will actually potentially be targeted. Targeted with different types of chemotherapy or different types of radiation or as we call them biologics. And so it, what does this mean? It means that there's a lot more options today for patients than there were even when my mom was diagnosed in 2006. So I mean lots more. And, and just the, the fact that we're able to now um, you know, look at these tumors under a microscope, test them in mice, test them, even just grow them you know, on their own and then and then actually, Test them with, let's say, a drug that works for melanoma may work with this mutation that is found, quote unquote, in colon cancer, and and it's just incredible. I mean, everybody's probably heard of, uh, you know, Jimmy Carter, of course, and his his recent success with uh, an immunotherapy product, and and I want to stress, you know, there's. Uh, you know, unfortunately, this isn't the same for every colon cancer patient or every colorectal cancer patient. But for a small subset of patients, we're actually seeing real success um, with um, people that have what's called MSI, MSI high status. So it's one of those things that you can see under a microscope. And if you have it, uh, we have found uh, an immunotherapy drug that is at least working for a short-term Complete, almost complete response, or allowing a patient to have, to be stable, so no growth in their disease, and it's it's just incredible where where we're going. Um, very very exciting.
2: Yeah, and and, and right to sort of, um, I want to just sort of break it down for listeners too. Yeah. Um, so we're. We are, we're talking about a, a couple of things, but, but what I'm hearing you say is that it is of prime importance to have your tumor tested. So when the tumor is removed as a part of either the, the, the biopsy um, or a, a, a more invasive surgery, make sure that that tumor is tested because it might overexpress certain proteins um, or it might have other triggers that would help the doctor or the medical team choose treatments that would be more effective for you as an individual.
3: Absolutely. That's perfect.
2: Yeah. Yep. And so And so we're talking, so in general, um, you know, we've heard Austin say that surgery is an option for people, and she actually had surgery as, as one of her treatments. You are talking about chemotherapy, immunotherapy, um, medications, if you will. And even medications have changed over time, right? I now think we have mm-hmm. um, IV, we have oral um, medications that we haven't had um, in, uh, in the future, and then this whole idea of immuno-oncology is exciting.
3: Yeah, and I yeah, I did brush over surgery, uh surgery radiation or intervention radiology. Um so most of the time when you're a colon cancer patient, you will start with a colon resection. Uh, and that means that they actually cut out the part where your tumor is and then they uh, reattach your colon. If you have rectal cancer, it actually depends. They may start with chemotherapy and or radiation followed, um, followed by surgery. Um, you know, surgery is still, or we, as we call resection, is still, um, you know, very important in terms of treatment of, of colorectal cancer whether it's in your colon, whether it's in your rectum, whether it's in your liver, or even uh, lung resection as well. I mean, those are incredibly important and, and effective uh, ways to treat the disease. Mm-hmm.
2: Okay. Austin, I'm going to come back to you for, some co- for just comments on that. When you, you know, because patient empowerment is important to the CSC mission. I know it's important to the Colon Cancer Alliance miss- mission. So when you were making treatment decisions as a part of your, your treatment plan, can you talk to us a little bit about how you empowered yourself to become a, a participant in, in that discussion with your healthcare care team?
4: Mm-hmm. So I was, I went through uh, two oncologists before I met with Dr. Marshall. Um, and once I met Dr. Marshall, I completely entrusted him in my care. So I he would ask me, well, what, what do you want to do? And I would say, well, what do you suggest? Um, Because I know his reputation. I know how great he was. So I followed um, what he told me to do. And I had a combination. Like I started off with a surgery and I had um, IV chemotherapy uh, through my port every other week. Um, And then I went to every three weeks Uh, and then i did maintenance chemotherapy for a little while with Zoloda. You had mentioned oral chemotherapy, um, so I I did do oral chemotherapy for a year.
2: And then and then so how you know when you think about you know what what you learned over time and what you're carrying with you now, what would you invite? What would you advise patients as they're sort of moving into this period of, of discussion and you know what what leads into post treatment survivorship? What, what would your advice be to them?
4: I think. Um, doing your research. Uh, I mm-hmm. got really lucky and had an awesome doctor, um, but I definitely think doing your research because there's different treatment options um, depending on, you had mentioned um, immunotherapy and the different types of tumors um, and what would be most effective. So knowing knowledge is power. So knowing what type of tumor you have is, um, going on, there are sites that you can look up research and talking to your doctor and having those discussions um, about what is the best option for me and maybe presenting um, like a research article to your doctor that they might not have been aware of that might be newer um, I think are all very important things um, for patients to do and if it's too much to handle being a patient because I know being a patient I, I really wanted to give the reins to some other people so I didn't really have to worry about the details of my treatment and I was super lucky that my parents were those people for me. Um, they came down, they would ask all the questions. I had a very good friend who would go to all my doctor's appointments with me too, and they would, I was always amazed. They were always asking questions like, oh, yeah, I, I probably should have asked that. Um, so if you have a friend or a relative or someone who can take notes for you when you go to the doctor's offices or do that research for you, so it takes it off your plate But as long as you're an advocate for yourself in some shape or form.
2: Yeah, I think that's great advice, especially the the advice to reach out and, and and let others help you because it's so important because others really do want to help you and and, and have a role in that.
4: Exactly. Yeah, I definitely think so. And and having the conversation cuz you don't want help all the time, but definitely uh it's a humbling experience needing to have help. Um but like you said, people do want to help you, and being able to accept that help is really, really beneficial in, um, I feel like, your treatment process and outcome.
2: Yep, that's 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 great. Um, Michael, we are going to a commercial break in exactly 20 seconds. Can you just quickly give us the website of the new Combined Colon Cancer Alliance?
3: Sure. It's ccalliance.org.
2: www.ccalliance.org You are listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. Today we're talking about colorectal cancer in honor of Colorectal Cancer Awareness Month, which has been taking place throughout this month of March. This episode is sponsored by Taiho Oncology, and we will be back with more right after the break.
1: a global network of education and hope.
5: Cancer, it's a lonely word. Terms I don't understand. Choices I never thought I'd have to make. But there is hope
0: and help. Support from cancer survivors. Links to research and clinical trials.
5: Help with finances and access to care. All behind you Break Breakaway from Cancer, created by Amgen to empower cancer patients. The cancer support community is proud to be a partner of Breakaway from Cancer. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness.
2: Welcome back to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. I am your guest host today, Linda House, President of the Cancer Support Community, and I am joined today by Michael Sapienza, who is the CEO of the Colon Cancer Alliance, and Austin Thomas, a dietitian nutritionist with Keystone Nutrition, LLC. As a quick reminder, March is Colorectal Cancer Awareness Month, which is a great time to have the conversation with your doctor about your risk and screening, and given this is the end of uh, of the month, I would really suggest that you mark your calendar for March of twenty. 2017 to make sure that you continue with those healthy screening practices that Michael talked about in the beginning of of the show. If you've not yet engaged in those, then April is the perfect time for you to talk with your healthcare team to get those um, started. So Michael, we have talked a lot about awareness on this show, so talk to us about what Colon Cancer Alliance is doing, either to commemorate the month, to raise awareness, to honor you know survivors patients those touched by colorectal cancer
3: Sure, absolutely. So on March fourth, we have our what's called Dress in Blue Day. So this is a day people all across the country and even all across the world uh, dress in blue, either to raise raise awareness, raise funds, remember a loved one that has passed, or to honor somebody that is going through the disease. Uh, I think we we, we actually uh, did a photo contest this year, and we had something like uh, 500 um, people from all across the country. I think some even you know uh, across across the the world send in photos of themselves, of their family, of their friends. Of loved ones, you know, dressing in blue to really kind of remember and, and to raise awareness, just general awareness for colorectal cancer. So, and then also yesterday, today's uh, Thursday, yep, yesterday morning we were actually ringing the opening bell at, at the NASDAQ with Carmen Mark Valvo, one of our board members, and some individuals from Dress Barn. So, we were very, very excited to, to do that uh, as well.
2: That's great. And and so where can I know that you gave uh, our listeners the website but can they can they find out more information about those activities or can they print their own information if they go and visit that website and I'm going to have you remind us of that site again.
3: Yeah, absolutely. So so there's there's two sites but ccalliance.org um, is actually the, the, most, uh, the most reliable, the one that has a lot of them if you go under events. And there's also dressinblue.org, which has some information as well. Even though the day already happened, there's still lots of tools on there. So it's either ccalliance.org or dressinblue.org. Great.
2: Thank you. And, and, and I agree with you that even though the, the day is gone, you could really do an awareness day any time of the year. Can't Absolutely. raise awareness too often. Absolutely, Austin. What what advice do you have for patients out there who might be listening to this and wondering what they can do personally to raise awareness and and help others who may be touched by colorectal cancer?
4: Um, go to social media. <laughs> that everyone is on social media these days. You um, are everyone's texting their phones, and it takes two seconds to just put a post up saying, hey, remember, get your colonoscopy. Um, You can go to, uh, like, um, Colon Cancer Alliance site, or if you're a patient, you can go to Colon Town, and there's posts all the time. You can even just copy someone else's and um, put it up, and don't be afraid to share your story. I think um, colorectal cancer can be embarrassing sometimes, just because of the nature of it. Um, but it doesn't discriminate. It's not an old person disease anymore. And just being able to be open and to talk about it. I mean, I was young. I was 27 when I was diagnosed. But I have conversations with people who are 50 or above who hadn't had their colonoscopy yet. And they're like, hey, you know what? I need to get that. Like, if you if you can go through that, then, then who says I'm not next? Those so, just getting the word out there and making sure that people are aware. Mm-hmm. And, and did
2: you find any particular social media more or less helpful for you? Um, you know, did you find the, the, not I don't want to say the best in terms of those qualitative terms, but what, what Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, yeah, any I think, of those? I mean, I
4: use all, th- I use all three. Um, I think I get uh-huh. the most exposure on Facebook um, just mm-hmm. because, My network is larger on Facebook, but I think it depends Mm -hmm. on what's best for you. I know um, a young patient as well, and she uses mostly Twitter. So I think wherever you have the most exposure and you can reach the most people, and that's going to be different for each individual. Um, But for me, Facebook was definitely the best.
2: Great. And Michael, when you have people that, that call you and ask you, um, you know, where they can go for support or where they can get additional resources, in addition to your, your, the websites that you've mentioned, um, and, and I'll ask you to mention those again here in just a second as we close out the show, but are there any other go-to resources that you want our listeners to be aware of?
3: Yeah, so I think there's there's three three things. So we have a, a call-in line um, as I know the Cancer Support Community does as well. Um, that number is 877-422-2030. Uh and that's for patients that are newly diagnosed or are looking for more information that certainly certainly can be helpful. Um, we also have two online communities um Austin, Austin recommended uh, Colon Town. We also have one that's called Blue Hope Nation, and those can be found on on the website as well. And I, I just also wanted to, to say, you know, I know cancer support community also in many many um, communities across the country have have um, you know actually centers where, where patients can go to get uh, you know one on one and or or group support. And you know, we've partnered with you guys on a bunch of different things, so I know your resources are also very very important for colorectal cancer patients as well.
4: Yes, well, thank you. I want to echo what Michael said just real quick, too, because um, my oncology nurse at Georgetown, depending on where you're being treated, there is support groups um, for patients uh, for different ages as well. So if you are young, there are groups um, for younger individuals where you can meet on Sunday nights um, at Georgetown and you get around and you talk about the different issues that you face going through treatment.
2: That's a that's a great comment. Thank you for that. That's true. Um, so I'm just gonna I'm, I'm going to talk slowly. I'm intentionally pausing for a moment while our listeners get a pen, if you don't have one already. And I'm just going to repeat some of this information for you. And Michael, correct me if um, if I'm wrong. You mentioned first of all um, a couple of online communities. You've mentioned Colon Town, just as in your colon, right? Colon Town. Mm, yep. And you've mentioned Blue Hope Nation which I'm guessing was named because of the color blue yep. as your representative color. Okay. Yep. So, Town, Blue Hope Nation. You mentioned your telephone helpline, which is 1-877-422-2030. Correct. And one more time for your website.
3: Sure. It's ccalliance.org. Great.
2: Thank you very much, Austin and Michael. We so appreciate having you on the show today, raising awareness of colorectal cancer, screening, treatment, survivorship, and realizing that it's not just in March, but uh, all year round. Thank you so much for being here with us today. Thank you. And for our listeners, if you have ever been diagnosed with colorectal cancer or if you've been a caregiver to someone with colorectal cancer, one of the resources that the cancer support community has for you is our Cancer Experience Registry. Please help us understand the full impact of the cancer experience by joining the registry at www.cancerexperienceregistry.org. That's cancerexperienceregistry.org. The Cancer Support Community provides a multitude of in-person, online, and over-the-phone support. If you or someone you know is faced with a cancer diagnosis, you do not have to do it alone. For more information about our programs and services, please visit www.cancersupportcommunity.org to find a location near you, or you can call our toll-free Cancer Support Helpline at one 888 793 Nine three five five, where you'll be able to speak with a licensed mental health professional Monday through Friday from 9 a.m. to 9 p.m. Eastern Time. Until next time, be well, do well, live well.
1: Thank you for joining us for Frankly Speaking About Cancer with your host, Kim Tibaldo. We're here for you every Tuesday afternoon at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. In the meantime, stay connected online at cancersupportcommunity.org. That's cancersupportcommunity.org.